0: Hello everyone and welcome to fresh take from what fresh hell laughing in the face of motherhood. This
1: is Margaret and this is Amy and today we're talking to Kara Natterson and Vanessa Krull Bennett. Dr. Kara Natterson is a pediatrician and New York Times bestselling author. Vanessa Krull Bennett is a puberty educator and writer. Together, they co-host the Puberty Podcast, run Order of Magnitude, a company dedicated to solving the pain points of puberty by empowering kids and their adults, and they are also the co-authors of the new book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained, most impressively, however, between Cara and Vanessa, they are parenting six teenagers. <laughs> Welcome, Kara and Vanessa.
2: Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> Amy, I just want your voice like around us all the time. It's like so nice <laughs> and calm. Like, I just want you to talk in my presence and I'll feel better about everything.
1: Thank you. Well, I'll return the favor and say like you're, this book is a very calming presence. You lay it out. It's all intense and it's all going to be OK. Right. But where it starts is that puberty has changed in a lot of ways since it was happening to us. And one of the most profound ways that it's changed is timing. So let's talk about that.
3: What's amazing about the data around puberty is that it's actually not that new. It's just that people don't talk about it a lot. So we've known since 2010 that the average age that girls enter puberty is between eight and nine. And we've known since 2012 that the average age that boys enter puberty is between nine and ten. That's not new, but it's very new to a lot of people who have never really thought about it. That information can feel really overwhelming. And it is very different than the timing of puberty, certainly when I was growing up. So I was a baby of the 70s and 80s, and the average age for entering puberty at that point was the same as it was post-World War II. Girls would start around 11, and boys would start around 11 and a half, and it was a very quick sprint, and you would get through it in three, four, five years, and you'd be done. Now, not only is it starting earlier, but it is not a sprint. It has stretched like taffy, and it occupies almost a decade. So we know that kids starting in third or fourth grade are in puberty, and they don't finish till they're almost out of or out of high school.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's double click on that because it's, I think that people think of puberty kind of like a door or a short hallway. And definitely when you say entering puberty, like when I hear entering puberty, I picture getting your period. That's what I picture kind of as the big marker of puberty, but that's not what you're talking about. And I think this idea of puberty as something that happens over time is confusing to me and other people.
2: Yeah. I mean, What's interesting is people think of period, that's super common. They're like, oh, that's the beginning of puberty. But really, that's actually the midpoint for female puberty. And breast budding is usually the first sign of female puberty. And that's what carr is referring to as the onset between eight and nine is breast budding. So there are now four years on average because the first period hasn't moved much earlier, maybe by a few months. So it's like 12 and a quarter as opposed to 12 and a half when we were going through puberty. So there are four years, maybe more, between when a kid is breast budding and a kid hits the midpoint of puberty approximately with a first period. And then there's a bunch of years on the back end of growth and change and development after that. So that's what's kind of striking for people is that entry, that on-ramp is longer and the off-ramp is also long on the other end. And so it really is like I don't want to frighten anyone, but it's like that hallway. What's the movie? The frightening. The movie Shining. With Jack Nicholson. Oh, you're going to say The Shining. Yes. I think we need a better metaphor, people. The Shining
0: hallway is not. I don't know. Yeah, we're one minute in. And your kid is riding their big wheel,
2: and then on come around the corner. So yeah, the bloody twins. Amy's like, you guys are so positive. And here I am. It's like the shining hallway. (laughs) Can I jump on
3: and add that one of the things that's confusing about all of this, and you are not alone in your confusion, I would say the vast majority of people sit in some confusion around this. What is adding to the confusion is that the definition of puberty can either be very narrow or very broad. So... The narrow definition of puberty is the path to sexual maturation. So a body going from a child's body to a body that can one day potentially be part of making a baby. And that does begin between eight and nine, that sexual maturation. But the sort of concept of puberty as a whole is also much broader. It is all the things in your life that are impacted by the sex hormones that are making your body physically mature. And those sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone are the big ones. Those hormones circulate not just in your body, but also in your brain. So Vanessa is exactly right that the first physical sign of puberty in a girl is breast budding and the first physical sign of puberty in a boy is testicular or penile growth. But really, the first sign of puberty is usually a slamming door. Because the moodiness that goes along with surging and falling hormones is very real. And parents of third and fourth graders will often recognize that moodiness and go, wait a second, maybe my kid is in puberty. And so when we talk in our book about all the ways that puberty has changed, we talk a lot about the physical changes, but we talk a lot about the emotional and social changes as well.
1: You talk in the book about how sort of normal is early and early is really early, what we call precocious puberty. And sometimes you say in the book, sometimes we think it's precocious puberty and no, it's really just part of the new normal. But you talk about early bloomers. I thought this was very useful that a child can look mature, can act mature, can be perceived as older by everybody around them but their executive functioning skills are not ripe. They're not ready to live in the body that they are living in. So what advice do you have for parents of early bloomers? I think if there's one takeaway, I don't think I can boil it down to one take. One of
2: the most important takeaways from the book is treat kids the age they are, not the age they appear. And For early bloomers, when they look 16, but they're actually 12, there are all sorts of impacts on kids being treated older. They get unfair expectations placed on them about academic capabilities, decision-making. They get exposed to things that are not appropriate for them at their age, right, that can present all sorts of risks for them. And it's true of the late bloomers too, right? A 12-year-old is a 12-year-old, even if he looks nine, he still has the intellectual capabilities and the curiosity and the social desires and, you know, all sorts of things. But if he gets infantilized because he looks younger, that has its own really hard and upsetting effects. So we really encourage people to treat kids the age they are. And that takes some real work on the adult's part because- We look at a kid and we make the assumptions based on how kids looked when we were kids. And it's completely different. And we have to dial it back and get a sense of, huh, hey, do you mind telling me what grade you're in? Or how old are you? Like, we really encourage people not to guess a kid's age, not to assume they know, right? That's a really simple thing. Oh, you're in fourth grade, right? But you're staring at a seventh grader. That's a pretty devastating question.
1: Yeah, I've mortified at a kid while his older sister stood there laughing. That I was like, so you're my like fifth I, I And I wish I had read your book 10 years ago because now I know better. <laughs>
0: yeah. You need to give this book to um, the TSA because this always happens to my son who is always like, are you nine? And he's like, I'm 13. And then it ruins his whole day. And it's a total bummer. But I also think... It's a little bit of a sphere of control problem, right? Like we can try to do this for ourselves and useful information for school. But a nine year old girl who looks 16, you don't have a ton of control because that's a problem about how mostly males are reacting to her in this space. So what do we do about this good advice when we actually are outside of a sphere of control?
3: Yeah, and it, it goes beyond that because there's very good data to show that those girls in particular are at much higher risk for sexual predation. So this is actually a really, really important point. You know, the incongruity between how old you are and how old you look is hard everywhere that it's incongruous, and frankly, it's hard when it's not too. It's like puberty's tricky, right? But when you are a emotionally young female who looks, Physically old, you are much more ripe for the picking in terms of sexual assault and grooming and other. And so, everything that we talk about in this book boils down to conversation, how to have conversations, not just with the kids in your lives. And this is not a book actually in the parenting sphere. It is not about parenting. It is about being an adult in the lives of kids. So, it might be that. You have kids living in your house with whom you have these conversations. It might be that you have kids in your classroom, on your team, in your clinic. So there are lots and lots of adults who I think can approach this particular issue in a very empowering way. And some of it is acknowledging to a kid, you look older than you are. Your brain is exactly where it's supposed to be for how old you are. But this is confusing because people might do or say things to you that make you feel good, but they're not okay. So I am always here. I am never going to judge you or be upset with you when you tell me what someone said to you. Don't ever be afraid to share with me. I'm going to help you. And that's what being a trusted adult is and building a network of trusted adults among adult group. So when you're worried about a kid who's in your life, having another adult to go to to bounce things off of becomes really, really
1: important. We're talking to Kara Natterson and Vanessa Kroll-Bennett, and their new book is This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We'll be right back. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew, and believe it or not, this will be my 13th When you've got kids, as just about everybody listening to this right now does, you're probably looking at what they eat and seriously wondering how they could possibly be getting all of the vitamins and minerals they need to grow big and strong.
0: That's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin for kids. Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need. And yes, Even your picky
1: eaters will approve. I know mine does. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables. Then it's supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals to help support our kids' growing brains and bodies.
0: And Haya vitamins are sent straight to your door, which means you set it and forget it and give yourself one less thing to worry about.
1: We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash fresh. This deal is not available
0: on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H HayaHealth.com slash fresh to get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. So before the break, we were talking about early bloomers and let's talk about late bloomers. I am in the middle of this experience myself right now. I recently went to a field trip and kids were coming off the bus and I kept saying, what grades went on this trip? Like some of these kids look 35 years old to me (laughs) and it's just that they're much More developed than the kids in my house. And it's a different kind of problem. And so, talk a little bit about the problems that are presented for late bloomers.
2: I think there's an array of problems. And typically, when we talk about late bloomers, we say it's more often boys than girls, although there are female late bloomers. But the earliest early bloomers are typically girls, and the latest late bloomers are typically boys because they start a little bit later. The average age is a little bit later. We like to look at it as a whole universe, right? So it's not just that they're smaller or that they haven't grown hair or that they are not getting muscle mass or, you know, all of the physical manifestations, but there are all sorts of social, athletic knock-on effects of being a late bloomer. So I am in a family where all the men in my family were late bloomers my husband, my brothers, and it was a really big deal for them growing up. It affected, they quit sports teams. They had moments of social challenge because other people were more developed or sort of in on the romantic crush scene and things like that. They had a real sense of feeling inadequate and it really affected their self-esteem. We really encourage parents A, not to say to a kid, oh, it's all going to be fine. Like you'll grow eventually. That doesn't help them because in the moment, (laughs) everything we say not to say is also (laughs) all things we've said to our own children. So, (laughs) okay, strike one for me on this podcast.
1: (laughs) See also things we have said. Lived experience. Oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) But, you know, their sense of time is... Their kids. So their sense of time, like down the road, what the hell does down the road mean? So one thing we really encourage is like, hey, how does it feel? Like what's going on for you? Where is this affecting, right? So you hear a lot from boys about like athletics. It's harder for them to compete. They get knocked off the ball. They maybe aren't making the teams they want to make because of their size. So we encourage parents to really ask, like, what does this feel like for you instead of assuming? The other thing is that if you're wondering, go see your pediatrician. Like even if you have a sense that everything's going to be okay and this is just how your family is and all the people in your family relate bloomers, there's no harm in going to see your pediatrician if only to get some reassurance. And they may say, and the hard part, particularly about male late bloomers, is that, as Carr mentioned earlier, the first sign of male puberty is penile and testicular growth. But like, we're not hanging out with our middle school yeah. kids naked. Like, we don't know if there's growth. Right, or right. Not not growth. Coming coming the They're time. not coming down. They're not even noticing, mom. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, they should notice because their hands are down there ninety-nine percent mm. of the time. Mm. But they're not, and really a medical professional is trained to determine if there is growth and if there is change that you know we wouldn't know or see and nor is it our job to do that kind of exam, but a doctor, it is their job. And it's really important
3: because there's a lot of worry that goes along with late blooming. The kids will worry that nothing's happening. The parents might worry that nothing's happening. And so the time lag between the very beginning of puberty In boys, testicular and penile growth, and seeing anything else, that can be a couple of years, and so it is actually really important for you to stop in and get a physical exam. That's why that annual checkup is so important, because a pediatrician can be reassuring and say, "Oh, look, actually there is testicular growth." I mean, they won't say, "Oh, look," they should actually (laughs) be kicking you out of the room at that point. But you know, just acknowledge that there's something, or to go down a path of what if nothing is happening and what do we need to do? So I'll double that. I mean, I'm biased because I used to be in the office all the time taking care of these kids, but it really makes a big difference.
2: I mean, the other thing, Margaret, I would say is that it's an opportunity, you know, if you say to a kid, oh, it'll all work out in the end, fine. But it is an opportunity for them to develop other parts of themselves while they wait, right? So like if they're doing physical activity and size as an issue, maybe it's time to introduce another sport or another physical activity that doesn't rely on size. Or maybe it's time to explore some extracurriculars that have are not physical, right? Like a cooking class or something like that, where it's like, as they wait it out, they're developing their interests and We did episodes on the Puberty Podcast, both with my brother, who made an entire show about being a late bloomer called Big Mouth. And it's an animated show. It is (laughs) not PG. After bedtime. So I just want your audience to know it is decidedly un-PG. But extremely funny. But extremely funny. And his whole life is based in having been a late bloomer and everything he had to cultivate in himself in response to that. And there are lots of really successful, brilliant, funny people who use that sort of discomfort of being a late bloomer into building really successful careers. So that's sometimes a nice way to point a kid towards the positive side when it's like less personal and you can point them out and look at the world and see folks like that.
0: And I also think, and I agree, and I've had a lot of conversations with my kids of the actual reason you cannot keep up in these spheres is testosterone. You don't have enough of it yet. And it. I think it takes it out of like, they're good, I'm bad. And it takes it into like, these are physical developments that first of all, my kid is a calendar year younger than a lot of the other kids in the class because of the way that people, you know, decide to send their kids to school, which is a whole different episode. But there is like you physically can't keep up because of things that are beyond your control. Not you're not trying hard enough. You're not good enough. You're bad.
3: Yes. Although big asterisk there, which is the follow up conversation is And when someone tries to sell you
0: testosterone, don't
3: buy. I'll
0: be right back. I got to make a phone call and make sure that my kid is not right now behind the school in a black market testosterone market.
3: What is fascinating is with information comes sort of rabbit holes and our kids are all online all the time. And so when we've educated them about the cause of something and that you are Perfect. That is exactly what you needed to do is you needed to identify the why of it all. But then the follow up is suddenly they start looking at for solutions and the solutions are not necessarily safe. And when it comes to testosterone, it is not safe for kids to be taking, buying testosterone, taking testosterone. If they need testosterone, that's because a doctor has decided they need testosterone and they're being prescribed testosterone. So going down some of those rabbit holes with your kid is really important. And the only way to get there is to do exactly what you just described, which is be in conversation and be open to all the questions and be completely non-judgmental and really empathic. And those questions come over time.
1: So let's talk about the questions, right? Because we all think or grew up thinking there's gonna be the talk. You have the talk, which I was extremely reluctant to have. And you argue correctly, obviously, that this is in fact there's a hundred small conversations, which Takes the pressure off it in a way, right? Each one doesn't have to be so all inclusive. But how do we, if we're supposed to have a hundred small conversations about this in a totally relaxed and askable parent way, where do we start?
3: Okay, I'm just going to tell a story, and then Vanessa is going to give you all of the secret answers. That's what she does for me every day. So when I used to see kids in the office, I played this game where I would kick the parents out of the room. I would say to the kids, "Have you had the talk with your parents?" And they would almost two oh one say, no, never had it. And then when I was done examining them, I would pull the parents into my office and the kid was getting dressed or whatever. And I would say to the parents, have you had the talk with your kid? And the parents would say, yes. And not only did I, this is exactly how it went. This is where I was standing. This was what I was saying. It was so deep and meaningful. It was like, da, da, right. And that was the first clue I had that it needed to be several talks because it did not land with one kid, not one. And it was a very big deal to the parents to have had the talk that the kids could not remember, because it did not rest. Nothing done once
2: resonates is what I'm trying to say. So Vanessa, you want to take us there? Yeah, I mean, so part of having multiple talks is you get a lot of shots, right? Like you have a lot of opportunities to do it. And We like to say that when you mess up, because you will mess up, everyone messes up having complicated talks with kids because they're hard and stressful and sometimes confusing. You get to do it again. You take a do over. You try again. You try a new tactic. So that's part of why it's many talks and not a talk. The other reason is there's so much information to impart to kid over this decade of caring for them through puberty and adolescence. And the last thing you want to do is lecture a kid. So in order to impart a lot of information without lecturing, it means tons and tons of tiny conversations. Some of those conversations are like four sentences long. Hey, kiddo, I got to tell you about this. You know, I just realized I never said to you testosterone is not safe. If anyone mm-hmm. offers it to you, yeah. you shouldn't talk will be it. happening you at it. You should come and tell me. <laughs> right. I mean I'm a Margaret, I'm calling your kids school right now to make sure you <laughs> Check <laughs> it. Um <laughs> back, and back, back, check. Yeah. If you've any questions about this, you can always come to me. That was four sentences. And then you're out. It's like, what do you want for dinner? Right? The stuff that is harder. If you have a kid who doesn't want to engage, right? It's not always a dialogue. Sometimes it's a monologue, and we just have to give them a piece of information like, hey, if anybody asks to touch your body who's not a parent or a physician, you should come and tell me. You can always tell me I won't be mad, right? That's two sentences and you're out. Oh, can we walk the dog now? Sure, let's go walk the dog now, right? Like, this is how it is with kids. It's like non sequiturs and they change the subject. So, It's sometimes just teeny pieces of information so that if it doesn't resonate with them or they don't remember it or you get it wrong, you always have another chance. And that is what we want parents to know. We want them to know it's okay if you make a mistake. Take the pressure off. Like you got this. You can do it. And one way you can do it is by giving yourself multiple chances to try to do a good job
3: you want to grab the moment in the moment and you don't want to dump what you've just learned on them in the wrong moment. And so what I mean by that is if you're driving down the street and you see an ad and it makes you think, hmm, I should have a conversation about consent with my child because what I see pictured in this ad feels very non-consensual. That's a great moment to point out the ad and start a brief conversation and ask them what they think or get their feedback or whatnot, right? So it's sort of taking the opportunity, taking those teachable moments. What you don't want to do is finish listening to this podcast and then decide that you are going to dump everything you have just learned on your... kid. I do this all the time. Vanessa knows I do this all the time. Oh, I just learned that I have to do A, B, C, D, and E. And I'm going to go downstairs and no matter what they're doing right now, because it's at the front of my brain and my brain holds nothing anymore because of my age, I need to dump it on them right now, right? So I'm going to go tell them everything I learned. And that's going to be great because I'm going to be able to check that box and say I did it. That is not effective. They have to be in a place where they can receive it. That, friends,
0: is in the new column. <laughs> we are talking to Vanessa Kroll-Bennett and Kara Natterson, the authors of This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained, and we will be right back. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba.
1: One really good point that the book makes is that we shouldn't assume that our kids know things. And the the example of body odor, like they might need to be walked through. You need to put the soap under the armpits and rub it around. We shouldn't assume they know that. I mean, there's no greater
2: symbol of how you have to get really specific with kids than when you send a 12-year-old to shower and they come out smelling as bad as they did (laughs) when they went into the shower. (laughs) And you're like, okay. This is a sign that I am not imparting the information the way it needs to be imparted. So in one of our houses, that conversation might have sound like, hey, I'm wondering, did you use soap in the shower? (laughs) No. Okay. You need to use soap. Oh, okay. Next time. No, 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 no. You're going to get back in the shower now and you soap under your arms, right? Like you have. They also sometimes lie, right, Vanessa? And then I say, can you stick your nose in your armpit and tell <laughs> me that again? So it's, we make assumptions because kids are really good at seeming like they've got it under control and they're like really sophisticated and they're throwing around jargon or they spend 20 minutes doing their hair, but they didn't actually use soap on their body, right? It's like there's this weird incongruity. So we like to encourage people to like figure out where kids are before they start in on a topic. I mean, pornography is a really interesting one because kids have heard the word, but they don't necessarily know what it means. And so that's one where you kind of have to start with like, have you ever heard the word pornography. And then you have an idea. And if they say, oh, yes, I know exactly what that is. Then the next question is, oh, can you tell me what it means? And like 90% of the time, they're like, uh, I don't know. I just know it's something not good. And that's as far as they get. And that's true of like so many topics around puberty and adolescence where kids feel like they're supposed to know and they put up a good front. But they actually don't have reliable information. And that's where we need to, that's our starting point, figuring that out. And I think in
0: talking about things like pornography, sometimes we have conversations and it feels like, well, everything's so different. And our kids and everything is completely changed. And I'm often kind of like, meh. I think a lot of the stuff is still actually the same. I do think pornography is somewhere. The technology has just changed so much that the access it's kind of in the groundwater in a way it just wasn't for kids in our grade, because I was not in a huge amount of danger of seeing pornography at school, for example. I mean, maybe a picture that someone smuggled in a notebook. I don't know. But not like I'm watching a pornographic film. Someone is showing that to me on a phone. I mean, that is a completely new reality
1: or i'm trying to watch something else and then some and then you see it anyway, right? Good point.
0: Right. Or i'm trying to look at something and that's right, the whole issue of being ready for the internet. I remember having very young kids and they were watching like a cartoon of, you know, like a roadrunnery type cartoon. And they some they were sitting around Google and they were like, oh, uh, being blown up with bombs. And they went to type it in. And I was like, oh, like grabbing it away from them because it's like they're thinking in the cartoon sense and suddenly they're about to hit a very different world. And that's another sphere of control thing in puberty that is so challenging, I think, for yeah, parents. Yeah, you know, the porn
3: issue is uh, talked about a lot and should be because it's not even about device ownership and when you give your kids a phone anymore. It's about access to different platforms and having login on a social media platform, being on platforms like YouTube, which is social media, right? All of these platforms are very easy delivery devices for imagery that kids aren't ready for. And the difference between porn when we were growing up and now is there are two sort of big notable differences. One is as you've described, the accessibility. And it's not just the random kid who is finding the pornography and then sharing it with other kids. It's the very intentional adult who's designing the program to try to get the porn to be one click away. But also the content of the porn. So this is not static imagery and it's violent and aggressive and misogynistic when it's free. And you know, there are lots of people who talk about all different kinds of porn, but at the end of the day, the porn that a 10 year old is stumbling upon and 15% of all 10 year olds have acknowledged. Stumbling on porn, it's 50% when they hit 12. So if you haven't had the conversation by 12, we'll never tell you you're too late to a conversation. We'll just very strongly encourage it because we're looking at 50% of 12 year olds who say, Yes, I've seen it. You know, if you're, if someone is writing the sexual narrative of your kid's life for them, boy, you really want to know about that and understand it and talk about it with your kid. That is the bottom line. That is the least judgmental way to approach porn, which is just, I want you to be able to write this story for yourself. I don't want someone telling you how it's supposed to look. And so that's my issue with porn. Easy.
2: And if you want to figure out if they've seen it, it doesn't sound like I know you've seen porn. And when I find out you're going to be grounded, and I'm going to take every single device away, right? Because then they're terrified of you, and they're never going to tell you anything. And they're certainly not going to come to you with questions or confusion, which is exactly what seeing porn as a kid promotes, right? It's baffling and scary and weird to them. So it's more like, huh? I wonder if you've, have you ever seen porn? Do you know what the word porn means? And if they say, oh yeah, so-and-so showed me this weird video on the bus the other day, right? Because everything either happens on the bus or at recess, like everything in childhood. Then you say, oh, what was it like? Wow. How did that feel when you saw that? Right? It's not like, oh my God, I'm calling his mother right now and you're not to be friends with him anymore, right? Because then they, again, they clam up. And the whole point of this endeavor is to foster open communication with kids so we can be their source of information. A lot of kids use porn to get information. Like they're just curious and they want to understand. And like you said, Margaret, it's accessible to them. So they're like, oh, I'll search it up. I'll look it up. And all of a sudden they've gone down a rabbit hole that is like pretty
1: wacky and confusing to a kid. There's another thing in the book. I mean, we certainly grew up in a day where they separated the girls from the boys and the girl half of the class had to hear about this and the boy half of the class had to hear about that. Like, I'm going to cop to like, that's kind of how it went in my house that the male parent talked to the boys and the female parent talked to the girls that all of our children should know how menstrual products work. That all of our children of all genders should know about nocturnal emissions, whatever it is, that we shouldn't just be arming them with the knowledge about their own body.
3: Right. Because why not? Why shouldn't we all understand how everyone's body works? And then we can have empathy and we can be kinder about it and we can help each other out. Why shouldn't a guy have a spare pad in his backpack so that if someone needs it, he can hand it off? Right.
0: I want to say agree. But I also want to speak for the person listening who's like, when does nocturnal emission come up in a way that's comfortable for me with my maybe 11 year old daughter? Like, I just I do think that the access points to conversation are really hard. I liked something that you said, Kara, which was you see the billboard like the way this tends to come up is like, OK, we're watching Wednesday and like I need access points to have these conversations because that's right. Like, when am I going to be like, let's talk? Talk about this. I love it. Okay, here's your access point. When I teach in classrooms, okay, and
3: I've taught in classrooms for many, many years, and up until recently, they were gender separated by and large. It is now considered largely standard to mix the classrooms all together and everyone learns the same thing together, but it's taken a while and not all schools participate in that, okay? So when I first started teaching classrooms, what I would do, because I really always believed in this, was I would do one class where a girl class would learn about everything that happened during girl puberty and a boy class would learn about everything that happened during boy puberty. And then the next class, we would flip. And at least they got the education, even though they were gender separated. And at the end of the class, the funniest thing, and this was so predictable, was that every single kid left each of the classes where it didn't align with what their body was doing and said, oh my gosh, it's so much easier to be whatever was happening to them because it felt easier because this is the body they were inhabiting and it was more known to them. Okay. So girls would leave the period class and they would say, oh, I can't even imagine needing to deal with wet dreams. So this is your into to the conversation, which is when there is a complaint about what happens to the body that you've been born into. It's a really nice thing to say. I know it doesn't feel like someone with different anatomical parts has anything like this to deal with, but you know what? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about instead of a period, you wake up in the morning and you've had a wet dream? And I'll tell you, that is an incredible opener to conversation because they have not thought about it, actually. They generally have not.
2: And our society does this weird thing where it's like, girls, puberty, it sucks, right? Everything about it is terrible and periods and this and that and poor girls and boys, everything's a joke, right? In our society, everything about boys, puberty. So it gives boys very little opportunity to ask serious questions about what's happening with their bodies and to have conversations about how they're feeling about it all because it's all just supposed to be a joke and it's a punchline to everything. And with girls, it's like, oh, everything's a bummer. Why am I going through this process where everything's a bummer? But you know, I inhabit a female body and it's not all a bummer. Some of it's awesome and super fun and cool. And so creating that empathy also pushes back at our societal kind of norms about people's puberty. And it's like, there's so much universal about it. And there's so much about it that is shared regardless of what biology happens. And that allows them To see it, if you really understand what's happening across bodies, there's no topic that a group of boys loves more than learning about menstrual care products. And like the engineering is super cool, like a pad with wings or how a tampon works like it's really. F- yeah. Put a tampon in a water bottle and I mean,
3: you've got them for days. They are fascinated.
0: I might say your mileage may vary. I wouldn't just whip this out at the dinner <laughs> table tonight. You guys are pretty deep in this world. I'm just maybe advising
2: our listeners. <laughs> take this with a slight grain of salt. Don't try it at the dinner table. I mean, one of us might have run a private puberty workshop for her sons.
0: (laughs) I mean, you're in it. You're in the life. I love that for you. But I just want to just give our listeners like, I'm not sure this is what you want to do at the birthday party.
2: I know. (laughs) I'm
0: sure oh, no. that's right. Our
1: children are moving in with you, Margaret. They've had enough of us. <laughs> believe me. Believe me. We've been talking to Vanessa Kroll-Bennett and Kara Natterson. They are the co-authors of the new book, This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We're going to put the link to the book in the show notes. It's out now. Everybody, this is crucial. Have it on your shelf. And as we were saying before we started recording, this is not just for the parent of an eight-year-old. This is the parent of a me-year-old kids in college. There are still things for me to be talking about. But Cara and Vanessa, tell our listeners where else they can find you and your work. So they can find
2: us on Instagram and TikTok at spillingthepuberty. We have lots of reliable science-based content for people of all ages. We want people who are on these platforms to actually get good information that's based in science so they can find us there. They can also find us at the Puberty Podcast, anywhere they get their podcasts. This
0: was such a fun conversation and a useful conversation, our favorite kind. Thanks so much for talking to us today.
1: Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks, Carl Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.